Can I please get you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 13, continuing our series uh, in this part of Genesis. It's on page 11 of the Church Bibles. And that outline I spoke to you about earlier, that uh, handout I spoke to you about earlier on the inside of it, is an outline of uh, where we're going. So it would be helpful to have that uh, with you as well. In a really positive way, sometimes God's blessings bring problems. I remember the time when uh, Smack used to meet in the Slangle Club. Uh, and the room where we used to meet got full. Uh, that was a good problem to have. And then we started Smack 2. Right? I look forward to the time where we have that kind of problem again. That would be a good problem. Problems with blessings can be good. In our reading today, God had been blessing Abram. Back in Genesis chapter 12, set, uh, this is 2,000 years before Christ, God had spoken to Abram and promised him and his descendants the land of Canaan. He had promised him that many descendants who would live in that land, and God promised that he would bless him abundantly there. Those who blessed him, God would bless. Those who cursed him, God would curse. And all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abram. He was a very key player in God's plans for the whole world. Now these promises would be literally fulfilled in Israel's history. And they would be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. But God had given Abram a foretaste of this by having him dwell in the land. Even though he didn't actually own it, didn't have possession of it, just wandered around it like a nomad. Well, he was a nomad, really. God blessed Abram in the land with an abundance of physical blessings, foreshadowing the blessing on the nation of Israel, and ultimately, our spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And he also blessed his nephew Lot, who was part of Abram's extended household. Blessing those who bless Abram, as he promised. And so Abram grew rich, and so did Lot. And last week we saw that some of Abram's wealth, at least, came from the Pharaoh of Egypt. Abraham's trip to Egypt had been a disaster. He had disobeyed God by moving out of the land of promise, because of famine. I mean, actions were understandable, but, but wrong. And one thing had led to another. He'd lied about his wife, saying she was his sister. Pharaoh had taken her to be his wife, and only God's intervention had saved Sarai from, from being kept in Egypt. Abram had jeopardized the promise of land by moving out of it. And he jeopardized the promise of descendants by putting his wife in danger. And yet God was gracious and kind to him, even though he didn't deserve it. God not only saved him from the situation that he was in with Pharaoh, he even blessed him in it, with all these gifts from the Pharaoh. 
God's promise would not fail in spite of Abram's unworthiness of it. Since then, Abram had repented. He had retraced his steps, gone back out of Egypt, back to the land of Canaan, back, back to the land of Canaan, with all his flocks and his wealth, the place where he had worshipped God at first, and there he called on the name of the Lord. And that's what we're up to in our passage today. So here in our passage, Abram's back in the land. So is his nephew Lot. Under God's blessing. The flocks are expanding, herds are growing, getting more and more people, more tents. This is boom time for them. I don't know if you remember boom time. It was a while ago, wasn't it? But these blessings led to promise. Well, actually they led to problems. Verses 5 to 7 show the problems with the blessings. Genesis 13, 5 to 7. And Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, the fact that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling, dwelling in the land, they were settled there, right, means that the land wasn't, wasn't empty. They settled, they had large, they had tracts of land, they were, they were occupied by them. And so nomadic people like Abram and Lot, they have to move around looking for pasture between these bits of land that, are, that, that have been you know, sealed off by these, these more settled people. So it's understandable there is competition for the scarce resources. But Abram and Lot are relatives. Abram doesn't like his people fighting with Lot's people. And so he proposes a solution. Chapter 13, verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. Dear friends, in a fallen world like this one, there are times when it's better to separate than to fight, isn't it? Uh, now, I'm not talking about marriage here. There's a whole different issue. But there are times in churches, in ministries, in workplaces, in communities, in relationships, where going separate ways is the least worse option, if you know what I mean. Right, and this is one of them. It's good to be together, but there are times when, when people have to separate. This part of the land couldn't support two big companies like this. And, and the wise thing to do, rather than to compete, was, was to live apart. And yet, even as he proposed the separation, Abram wasn't being competitive. Maybe he'd seen how God had blessed him in the past, and he was confident God would continue to bless him, whatever happened. Maybe he was just a gracious man, in response to God's grace to him. I don't know. But he gives lots of choice. Verse 9 again. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. Lot could choose whichever part of the land he wanted. Whichever way, which you choose. You go one way, I'll go the other. Now, at one level, there is much to commend Abram for here, isn't there? He's being a peacemaker. 
He's not being greedy. He's letting his nephew have the first choice. But there is a flaw in this plan. I wonder if you thought about it. It's a flaw that probably Abram didn't even think about. You see, as we read on in Genesis, we will discover that Lot would become the ancestor of two groups of people in the Middle East. We have the next slide, and we'll see who they are. Genesis, there's a very sordid story in Genesis 19, which we'll come to eventually. Lot becomes the father of two sons. And the first born one, in the first 37, is called Moab. And he was the father of the Moabites. The younger one was called Ben-Ami, and he was the father of the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites would in years to come be great enemies of Israel. And Abram, the father of Israel, was offering their ancestor whichever part of the land he wanted to live in. Did you see the danger now? God promised Abram and his descendants the land and he's just about to give it away to Lot. Would the Moabites get the land? The Ammonites? Last week we saw the danger of giving up our inheritance when things got tough. This year we see a danger of giving up our inheritance not by deliberately sinning, but by, you know, when things are going well. When God seems to be blessing us so much that we forget to set our hearts on the, on the promises of the future, and set so caught up with all the good things that God gives us now, we take our eyes off heaven, and we're actually in danger of giving up the land accidentally, with all the good intentions in the world. When Abram and Lot were so blessed in the land they couldn't fit in, Abram just virtually offered it to Lot. Sincerely. Best of intentions. Trying to keep the peace. Trying to make his family happy. Trying to create room for more wealth and blessing. But in doing so, he's put the promises in danger. Does that make sense? Do you see that? I'm getting a response. Do you see that? Yes or no? Okay. Thank you. Friends, we who believe in Christ have been promised eternal life with Jesus in the new creation. Like Abram, we've believed the promise of God. We've spiritually traveled to the promised land. That is, we've left the world, we belong in heaven with Christ. And while we belong there, it's not ours yet. Looking forward to the fulfillment of the promises. And even as we enjoy the blessings of God in this life, we've got to make sure that our eyes are firmly set on the fulfillment of God's promises in the end. That we're not careless about them. Or take them for granted. And put them in danger by just not thinking. Well, how do we, can we put it up? our promises in danger in a, in a parallel way to Abraham. What can we do with all the good intentions of the world to, to endanger the promises and jeopardize our part in God's promises? We're just by you know, trying to be unselfish and good. Well, 
Abram's carelessness. Look at it here. It's to do with a member of his family. Someone he really loved. Someone he wanted to keep the peace with. Are we tempted to do things that we know we shouldn't just to keep the peace in the family? We fail to do things that we should just so that there can be family harmony. We make the family an idol. You know, anything that is more important to us than God is an idol, isn't it? It's easy to make family an idol because actually family is really, really important. It's right that it's important. Husbands that love their wives as Christ loved the church. It means giving themselves for them. Children are to honour their parents, look after them in their old age. People who refuse to take responsibility for their aged parents, the Bible says, is worse than outsiders. Family is a good thing. It is right to make it a priority. That's why when it becomes an idol, it's hard to, hard to detect. And yet, yet, it can happen. Because instead of serving God by serving our family, family can become an end in itself. Family can be an excuse for failing to make the sacrifices necessary for the gospel to go out. Many people migrate from here to the West, not because they think they can serve God better in that context, but I mean, if they genuinely think they can, that's a valid reason to migrate. Go ahead. But many Christians migrate for the sake of the children. Children who end up as materialistic and godless as their peers in the Western countries. Many people build their lives around their children and serve the gospel. Of course, again, there's a rightness about that, isn't it? We need to serve our children, to bring them up in the fear of the Lord, look after them, seek their good. They're all godly things. We've got to look at our priorities. The children's tuition and ballet and taekwondo and afternoon sleep can be the most important things in the week and everything revolves around that. And church, well, you know, if we can fit it in. But the kids' piano class always happens. Friends, that is dangerous to our spiritual health. And it's no good for the kids either, is it? Because then what are we teaching them? That God and his kingdom fit around our convenience. That the most important thing in the week is their activities. Huh? Gathering with God's people to hear his word and respond to him together. That they are more important than God? And they grow up serving God like that? Many people in our congregations have had non-Christian families. What happens when there's a funeral? Called to hold the joysticks and bow to the dead? Will we stand respectfully instead and thank God for the deceased and pray for those who mourn? Or we compromise our stand because we don't want the family to fight in the car on the way home. So in the end, what's, what's our highest priority? Don't do anything, even for the family, which will endanger the inheritance. It's not good for you, and ultimately not good for the family. It's the best thing for the family is they come to know Jesus, isn't it? And how can they do that unless you show how really important he is to you? Don't let family put the promises in danger. How else can we put danger, the promises in danger in a, in a parallel way to Abraham? What, what else can we do with the best intention of the world to jeopardize the promises? Well, 
Abram's carelessness, in a sense, was because he was nice, wasn't he? <laughs> he, was, he was being nice to Lot. Giving him the choice of the land, that was a, a nice thing to do. But it endangered the promises. In fact, we all, well, most of us anyway, want to be nice. All right? Now, I'm not suggesting you should be nasty. Right? Please be nice, by all means. Especially be nice to me. Right? But don't be nice in a way that endangers your inheritance. Don't be nice in a way that compromises your integrity. As other people dictate what is right and what is wrong. And don't let your life being nice compromise the truth. Many unbelievers say, oh, there's many, many ways to God. One way is this one, Jesus is one way, all different, one, different ways. Don't, don't give up on the uniqueness of Jesus. It's a, it's a nice thing to do. People give you brownie points for tolerance, but, but nice is not the point. Only Jesus is God made human. Only Jesus died for our sins, paid the price. Paid the sacrifice. Only Jesus rose again from the dead. Only Jesus will judge the world on the last day. Only Jesus can save us, give us eternal life. To actually teach people otherwise might be nice, but it's actually cruel. Because it gives people false hope and leaves them trusting in something that can't save. Don't endanger the promises by trying to be nice. Back to our passage. Lot is about to make his decision. What would happen if Lot chose the promised land? What would happen to Abram and his promises? The Moabites and the Ammonites inherit the land that God promised Abram's descendants? Remember how last week we saw God save Abram from the danger when his wife was, was trapped in Pharaoh's household? Is God going to save Abram from this danger that he probably doesn't even realize he's in? So what's Lot going to do? Well, verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. We'll come back to that. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. At this point, he meant to go, Phew! Lot had the choice. And instead of choosing the promised land, he chose the Jordan Valley, the other side. He thought that was going to be better, and he left the promised land. So once again, Abraham had endangered the promises, but once again they're secure. Because behind those promises was a sovereign God, who was going to fulfill those promises, in spite of every mistake that Abraham would make along the way. And brothers and sisters, isn't it good to know that we serve a sovereign God? Isn't it good to know that in the end, nothing will thwart his plans and purposes? 
Not even our own folly. That's not an excuse to be foolish. an excuse to be unwise. But it is a comfort to know that in the end, my salvation does not depend on my ability to plan for it. But on his sovereign purposes. If we truly belong to him, then he will fulfill his promises for us in the end. From Lot's point of view, though, this decision is a great loss. Remember who Lot is. He's a relative of Abraham. He moves around with him. He's part of the household. Hasn't been given the promises of land, people, and blessing like Abraham. But but he's been there in the land with Abraham. He's been blessed along with Abraham by extension. And now, well, he's choosing to leave. And for the rest of his life, as far as we can see in Genesis, it's just one disaster after another. He's chosen to leave the place of blessing and move off. Friends, there will be people among us in church who are, who are not truly yet in Christ. Part of our community, but as far as we know, haven't received the promises. I wonder if you're one of those people. If you are, then can I say you are most welcome here. In fact, you're more than welcome here. We'd love to have you here. We love having people among us who are considering the gospel of Christ and considering the promises and thinking about whether to receive them. But in the end, you will have to choose. Will you choose the promised land? Or will you choose something else? We know that Lot chose to leave the land. We know that God planned it that way. He wasn't, he wasn't destined for the land. It wasn't actually up to Abram to offer it to him, really. But we don't know that with you. You may be one of the people of promise, destined like Abram to, to inherit the land. How do you know? How you can know? You choose God. You trust Jesus. Turn to him as your Lord. Rely on his death for your forgiveness. Know that he is your risen king. And you will find that God has already chosen you. Believe God's promises in the gospel. And you'll find the promises were made for you. Abram had these promises for the future. Lot had a beautiful place to stay now. When you look at it at first, you think, maybe Lot had a better deal. Superficially, it looks like he, he, he made a good choice. Verse 10 tells us that Lot the place that Lot chose was like the garden of the Lord. That is, it's like Eden. Right? Beautiful. It's like perfect. It's like how we're meant to be. But it's like. It was actually an imitation. It wasn't really Eden. It was an illusion. It was a disaster, actually. The end of verse 10 reminded us, as we read it just now, God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And this man was throwing his lot in, pardon the pun, with people who were about to come under judgment. Verse 13 tells us why. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And by choosing that, Lot was placing himself 
in a place that was destined for judgment. We'll see more about that in weeks to come. Friends, how often does the world look better than the promised land? How often do the things of this world seem more tangible, more desirable than the things of promise? But you and I know what will happen in the end. Unlike Lot, we can't even plead ignorance. The Bible tells us very clearly that God will bring the world to judgment. He will destroy it. So don't settle for imitations of heaven. It can be very attractive, but it will come under the judgment of God. The real promised land is in the new heaven and new earth. Don't miss out on the real promised land for things that look like it, but aren't really. Things that promise to be like the garden, but are actually cesspools of evil. Sometimes even church people can make this mistake. People who like Lot belong to the house of the promise and end up choosing an imitation. What kind of things do you think may be imitations of the garden in your life? What kind of ways could you or, or people around you pass up the promised land for something imitation? Let's try to think of some examples together. In the garden, the real garden of Eden, men and women enjoy perfect relationship with each other. Sin mucked that up. One day, perfect human relationships will be restored. That is in the promised land of the new heaven and new earth. Sometimes people are trying to get back to that the wrong way. They imagine that Mr. Right or Miss Right can give them all the fulfillment they need. If only they were with Mr. So-and-so or Miss So-and-so, if only I was with them, then everything would be okay. Now, of course, people won't say that consciously, because when you say it, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But that's, that's what's going on in there. The problem is, Mr. So-and-so and Miss So-and-so are just as mucked up a sin as we are. In the fantasy, the relationship's going to be perfect. Sure, a few major things to iron out. And after that, it's like the garden again. But no one's perfect. There's no perfect relationship on this side of the fall. It won't be sustainable. You'll be disappointed. But it's even worse if, in order to get that, that you're disappointed with, you endanger the real promises, the real heaven. When people say, she's misright. I, I know I'm already married, but she's so right that the only person I can be happy with is her. And my happiness is the most important thing in the world, isn't it? Or, he's not a believer, but he's the only one ever likely to be interested in me. And if I don't marry him, I'll be a spinster for life, and I could never be happy like that. There is danger, friends. Danger of swapping the real promised land for a weak imitation that will disappoint. What about the garden blessings of abundance and prosperity? The man and the woman in the garden, they had everything they needed. The new creation is a place of ultimate satisfaction. 
But there are imitations here. Comfort and possessions here, they can mimic heaven in a small and temporary way. Now, nothing wrong with having a nice home, a nice car, and a nice bank account. But what if you have to steal or cheat to get it? What if you have to work so hard that you do neglect your family? What if you have to seek your career and your business above seeking the kingdom? What if your job means you're so busy you don't have time to fellowship with God's people? What if you have to compromise your integrity or sacrifice your godliness on the, on the altar of expediency? Then you're in danger of swapping the real promised land for a weak imitation. That will disappoint. If you belong to Christ, then your true inheritance is in heaven for you. It is safe. It will never spoil or fade. In the words of 1 Peter 1 uh, 1 1 verse 4, it says, It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Don't swap it for an imitation. Go for the real thing. Abram nearly lost the land to Lot, but God made sure it turned out right in the end. Abram had put the promises in danger. God was going to make them all the more firm. God is faithful to his promise. Nothing can thwart his plans. And so in the midst of these words of warning, we have these words of comfort. God will fulfill his promise. And to underline that point, God repeats his promises here. After everything that has happened in the second half of chapter 12, where Abram goes off and does those terrible things in Egypt, and then in chapter 13, where he does this good but silly thing, God still intends to give Abram the land. Verse 14 and 15, chapter 13. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. Reiterates his promise. If you go down to verse 17, he tells him to walk through the land, the length and breadth of it. He's going to give it to him like, like he did before. Before he endangered the promise twice. Again, God promises them a people. Verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be be counted. Make you so many that you won't be able to count. It's like like dust. You won't count dust. Count your offspring. And you know, God did fulfill his promise. Fulfilled it in Israel's history. When 1000 BC, Abraham's descendants were living in the land, They were the nation of Israel under the wise King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 8, we hear a a prayer of Solomon, where he describes Israel as a people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitudes. Exactly what God had promised Abram a thousand years beforehand. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises will be in the new creation. Those promises have come to us. 
Because we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are the people from every tribe and language and nation, from all the nations of the earth, who have trusted God's promises like Abraham and are his spiritual descendants. And the Bible tells us that one day, all of these will be gathered around the throne in a multitude that no one can number. God's people in God's place and God's blessing in rule. Multitude that you and I will be part of if we believe the promises of Jesus in the gospel and follow him to the end. Let's close by listening again to how the Apostle John, guided by the Spirit, describes this multitude in Revelation 7, the true descendants of Abraham. And after this I looked, and behold a great multitude no one could number, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises you made to Abram. We thank you for your faithfulness in making sure that you protected those promises and you kept those promises, uh, even in spite of Abraham's uh, frailty and mistakes. We thank you for the same promises that have come to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the promise of forgiveness and life eternal in him. Our Father, we thank you then those of us who who belong to him have that same security uh, that you will keep those promises uh, and that you will bring us home in the end. Our Father, in the meantime, we pray that you help us to be wise and help us not to not to act in ways that uh, uh, that, 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 that endanger the promises. Um, act in way, help us to to keep our eyes uh, focused uh, on what you have done for us in Christ and what you will do for us in the future, uh, so that we will live our lives now in light of that. Our Father, we pray for those who may be thinking and deciding uh, which way to go, uh, whether to trust you and enter your promised land, or to, to go the other way and, and uh, to what looks more tangible in the world. Our Father, we pray that, that your Spirit would, would open their hearts and eyes uh, to see the, the wonders of the blessing we have in Christ, uh, the great forgiveness that we have in Him, and, uh, and the hope of glory. And pray that, uh, yeah, that you will, that you will call them uh, and help them to follow Jesus. So, Father, we commit these things to you, and we ask, Lord, and that you help all of us uh, be faithful to the end and be with you on that last day. We pray in Jesus' name.